Good to see everybody. I trust that you had a good Christmas. Um, New Year's is coming, and so I thought I'd pick a different text uh, to take us through. And uh, you're probably scratching your head a little bit and wondering, what are you going to do with that? (laughs) But I promise you, um, we will have a good time here in the book of Acts. Um, uh, let uh, Let me pray for us one more time. And then we will uh, get into this passage of Scripture, okay? Let's pray together one more time. Father, Lord, we come before you now and we thank you so much for the truths that we sang about just now, Lord. All of the rich theology and the rich truths that uh, are springing from our lips, Lord, may we have the strength to believe them in our heart, Lord, so that we don't just pay lip service to you, King but that we truly, in the inner parts of our being, that we would love you there, that our hearts would draw near just as our lips do, Father, in truth, in sincerity, in love, without hypocrisy. Lord, we pray that you would lead us now as we look at your word. We pray that you would have your way among us, that you would instruct us, Lord, and that you would challenge us and encourage us as we look at this portion of Scripture together. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, uh, today I want to talk about a special subject, and if you want to write down or jot down the title of the sermon, I would entitle this, Preaching the Gospel in a Post-Christian World. Preaching the Gospel in a Post-Christian World. Now, it's New Year's, and every time New Year's rolls around, you know it's an exciting time. It's an intimidating time. And it's challenging because, of course, we make many resolutions. And probably on the top of, the, on the top of, that, uh, of those resolutions is probably that diet that you've been putting off for the last year that you're finally going to get around to doing, right? I know that's at the top of mind. Trust me, when your mom comes in from out of town and makes the kind of food she makes, you need a diet. So there's no question that we are resolved to do such things as go on a diet, or maybe you're going to be resolved this year to finally read the Bible from cover to cover. Whatever it is to study the Word, you're going to finally read that book that you've been putting off. But every time New Year's rolls around, it's time to set new uh, resolutions that you're going to keep. But when it comes to the local church, as I was thinking about our church, I started thinking about our context. I started thinking about our culture. And I started thinking about the world in which we're living now. And um, I'm not here so much to give us a pep talk as much as to give us reality. And the reality is, as many people have pointed out, and uh, probably prominent among them that I've been reading lately is Albert Moeller in his book, Culture Shift, uh, The Disappearance of God. And I've been reading David Wells. I've been saturated in the writings of David Wells. If you are interested in Christ and culture, then you will read David Wells as I view him to be really the standard for uh, explaining how uh, culture happens and what happens within a culture. And it's brought me to this conclusion that we are living in a post Christian culture. What do I mean by that? Well, basically what I mean by that is that we're living in a time where our society no longer operates on the basis of Christian ethics, Christian morals, Christian standards, and Christian definitions. Those things can no longer be assumed. Let me give you an example of what I mean by that. Recently in the news, several stories came out that made me think about this very thing. 
Uh, one news coming out of Northern California where students as young as 13 years old were given homework. And the homework assignment was to go home and on their their homework, their sheet of paper that they were given was a, a figure that represented the gingerbread man. You remember that? Only this gingerbread man was entitled gender-bread person. Gender-bread person. And students as young as 13 years old were to figure their way around this curriculum and learn how to distinguish and how to develop their own gender. And they were taught in school, public school, they were taught to determine for themselves what identity they were going to pick for their lives, what gender they were going to be, whether they wanted to be identified as a boy or a girl. And then even worse than that, as young as 13 years old, these young uh, students were told uh, to know when are you ready for sexual interaction, to determine by themselves when they were ready to commit to that lifestyle. And what type of language to use in the midst of that. Uh, think about how, I mean, it sounds like we just woke up in a nightmare situation, right? But this is reality. In Minnesota, another story where a high school in Minnesota is now allowing students to pick, quote, their sport gender. So that if a boy decides that, apparently after going through the gender-bred person test, that he's decided that he will identify now as a girl, then he can pick his sport gender, and instead of playing on the boys' team for the soccer team, he will play for the girls' team, and vice versa. I mean, this is the world that we're living in, where in Plano, just to bring it home to our backyard, uh, the city council just decided uh, in a, I think it was a five to four vote, to uh, start incorporating gender-neutral bathrooms all over public spaces, where now you will have bathrooms that are open to gender neutrality, where men and women will both be able to use the same restroom. Can you imagine the implications of that? I mean, this is the world that we're living in, and I thought, boy, where can I go to the Bible to get something? <laughs> In the face of this type of moral collapse, or what David Wells and Dr. Moeller have called a post-Christian culture. And so I turned to Acts chapter 17, and I was comforted by the fact that in Acts chapter 17, we find similar things that, that, uh, that, 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 that are happening in our context, in Paul's context. It's always good when you basically can uh, find your own situation represented on the pages of Scripture to realize that God understands, God knows, and God wants to equip us to live and to minister in a post-Christian context. But let me just say this, going back to New Year's resolutions. What is the resolution of any local church if it is a true biblical church? Well, this is easy, because unlike our personal resolutions that may change from year to year, the resolution of a true biblical church never changes. It is always the same. And what is that resolution? Well, let me give you some examples. Matthew chapter 28, verse 19 through 20. Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I am always with you, even to the end of the age. In other words, it is the Great Commission. 
In other words, it is the proclamation of the gospel message. 1 Peter 2.9, same thing. After saying that we are a royal priesthood, a chosen race, a people for God's own possession, this is the purpose, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. The Apostle Paul praised the Philippian church because they joined him in the furtherance of the gospel. They had the same resolution. Philippians 1, verse 3 and 5, I thank my God in all remembrance of you, always offering prayer with you, uh, uh, prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all, in view of your participation of the gospel from the first day until now. In other words, as long as the Philippian church had ministered with Paul, their resolution to be gospel-centered, to preach the, the gospel, to proclaim the gospel, never changed. They were always centered on that, and that does not happen automatically, as we're seeing in popular culture popular culture and evangelical culture, as you're seeing capitulation after capitulation, compromise after compromise of people caving in and giving in. I was listening to one pastor that I respect, and he was teaching his people, and he was reminding them of these fundamental truths, and he said to them, I know that you feel like a dinosaur. <laughs> I know that you feel like it's the same old truths, but it's only the carnally-minded Christian that doesn't resonate with the truths of the gospel. Our calling is a lot like Paul's. We can say that in Acts chapter 17, essentially, what we're looking at here is that Paul is looking at a pre-Christian culture in Athens. And we can say, as we look across the wasteland of American culture, that we are now looking at a post-Christian culture. What do I mean by all that? Essentially, we're looking at the same things. Sinful humanity, spiritual slavery, Postmodernism, humanism, vain philosophy, religious pluralism, it goes on and on. Even worse, anti-Christian sentiment, persecution, and moral implosion. That's, what ha that's what's happening. You know what Acts 17 uh, verse 16 is? It's one of those places in Acts where we come up for breath, right? It's where Paul sort of takes a look at his surroundings to see what is going on in a city like Athens. And again, we are told that what he's looking at is nothing less than idolatry. A, a city that is seeped in sin, blinded by its, by its idolatry. And that's exactly, when we look at our world today, we need to recognize what is the idolatrous condition of our society. And what we find is that our society is seeped in materialism. Oh, we're not going outside of the doors of our homes and into our shops and looking at uh, idols of Artemis or statues of Zeus or, or some other Athenian Greek god or goddess, but we are walking outside the doors of our house and out of the church and going into a society that is bound by materialism, by hedonism, by ecumenism, by liberalism. And ultimately, I want to make a case for humanism, that that is the captivity that our culture is in. It is a humanistic, it is a humanistic autonomy that is everywhere today. What is humanistic autonomy? What that means 
dear brothers and sisters, is that man today in the modern uh, culture thinks of himself as self-sufficient, self-governing, needing nothing outside of himself, that he is good enough and strong enough, that he is wise enough, that he is moral enough, that he is spiritual enough, that he is religious enough so that he doesn't need the aid of supernatural conversion. That's exactly what it is. So this is the question I want us to contemplate. This is the question that I hope to set before us and I hope to answer. What is it going to take to preach the gospel in a post-Christian world? Number one, taking it from the text. Number one, it's going to take the right moral vision, the right moral vision. Most of our culture, if you do not know, has adopted what ethicists and philosophers have called the social construct theory. It seems like every college student that I talk to that has studied anything about sociology and philosophy knows about the social construct theory, which basically says that ethics is established by a state, by a people, by a nation, by itself. And it's based on social and established norms of behavior in a consensus. But the problem with that is that the presuppositions of any state is basically governed uh, by how good or bad the worldview of that particular state is. And so it doesn't deal with the assumptions of the worldview, whether they are right, whether they are wrong. That's because humanism does not believe in transcendency. Humanism doesn't believe that certain things are moral because they are simply morally uh, revealed to us as right or wrong. Nothing is given to revelation. Nothing. You ever met people that just completely disregard the Bible when you're talking to them? That is a humanistic worldview coming through. That is a worldview that says it is impossible for God, A, to reveal himself, and number two, it is impossible for man to know whether or not God has chosen to reveal himself. What is the end result? The end result is exactly what two college students recently told me. Life is meaningless. Life is hopeless. No, we can never know the ultimate reason of why we're here. No, there is no reason. There is no purpose. And when we die, that's it. We cannot know what is in the afterlife. We can't even know what's in this life and what this life is all about. We can't even know whether or not we're here. And that's the type of delusion that our entire culture subscribes to. It is a complete and total moral relativism, philosophical, epistemological, which means the way that we know anything, a complete relativism, a total, complete, comprehensive skepticism of everything, skeptical about everything, unable to know anything for certain. You've heard me talk about this before. But uh, look at Paul when I say a proper moral vision. That's exactly what Paul had in the gospel. Let's return to the text. Verse 16. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was being provoked within him as he was observing the city full of idols, preaching the gospel in a post-Christian culture means that we have to disagree with the idols of the culture. We have to disagree with its religious pluralism, its paganism. The worldview uh, dissent that Paul is expressing here, however, is not merely intellectual. 
okay? It is not just an intellectual exercise. I want to point out two things. Look very closely. But first, it's not just disagreeing with the worldview of our culture, but it is also, notice that Paul's indignation rocked him to his very core. Look at how the text forms this emphatic statement. His spirit, so that is the inside of the man, was being provoked within him, as if not enough to say that it is his spirit. Where is his spirit? Outside of him? Well, of course not. But the the text is emphasizing that he had an existential struggle, that he had an internal battle. He had an internal indignation, anger. He was provoked, if you would. He had sort of a good godly jealousy over these people who were worshiping and bowing down to dumb and deaf idols. In other words, he was brokenhearted for the culture. He was angry because of his lostness. When was the last time that you were angry at the lostness of your culture and your neighbors? Truly indignant that people are not worshiping the true and living God. He was provoked. It rocked him to his core. He was angry because of the lostness of his people, of all these people. And this is the fundamental tenet that Jesus taught. Remember, love to God must result in love to neighbor. It must. And if you don't love your neighbor, then it is probably clear evidence that you do not truly love God. Amazing barometer of Christian love is whether or not we love neighbor. Jesus summed up all the commandments based on this, all of God's revelation on these two principles. Love God and you will love your neighbor. You will be saddened and broken and upset over their pursuit of idols. Therefore, to preach the gospel to a post-Christian culture begins by caring for the culture and more importantly, caring for the people. That's where it really begins. But second, not only was there in an internal uh, brokenness, but notice, m- notice uh, what it is. Notice the nature of it. Notice what he's upset at. Paul was concerned, or Paul's concern was essentially religious. He was provoked within him as he was observing the city full of idols. And let me just throw something in here as a side note. When was the last time you became a religious spectator of the culture? where you sat back and thought deeply within yourself, what's going on around you? When was the last time you looked around the culture and assessed it for what it is? That's what Paul is doing. He's looking around and assessing Athenian culture for what it is. And he saw that it was man's greatest dilemma was present there. Man's greatest dilemma is his need of God. His greatest dilemma is the fact that he is separated from God because of sin. In other words, man's greatest need is his need to be reconciled to God, even before he needs to be reconciled to man. Now, I mention this because it's important. It affects what battles we choose to fight as Christians, as the church in the culture. Preaching the gospel is not primarily a social justice issue. It is not a racial reconciliation issue. It is not simply a socioeconomic issue, lifting people out of poverty. Those things are all good and right. But the clear mission of the church is gospel-centered. 
What separates us from the AAACP, the NAACP, or the Red Cross, or the Social Gospel, or the Tea Party, or Republicans and Democrats, what separates us from all of that is the gospel, is the fact that what we are saying and what Paul was saying is that what's really wrong with society is that they've offended God. That'll give some prophetic unction to your preaching. Because everybody can relate on a socioeconomic level. But, as we're going to go on to see in the text here, they can't relate to us when what we're saying is, man has offended a holy God. Make it more specific. Man has offended the holy God. Make it more specific. God has offended the holy triune God of Scripture. I guarantee you that people, Republican or Democrat, unless they are saved, unless they have a Christian worldview, will not resonate with that. But this is exactly what Paul did. This was uh, what Paul preached, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 20. He says, we are ambassadors for Christ, which means we are on a mission for Christ as representatives of Christ. And what is our mission? It's as though God were making his appeal through us. What is he appealing? We beg you. What is he begging man to do? Be reconciled to God. That's our message. The groups above that I mentioned, they, can, they have no interest in Paul's words at this point. Personal belief and personal religiosity and personal spirituality is auxiliary. It's secondary. It's, it's, a, it's optional. You could be whatever religion you want to be in those groups. And those groups say that they are there to meet man's needs, but none of those groups meet man's ultimate need. Therefore, we need the right moral vision, one that disagrees with the idols of the culture. And we can go on and on about the types of idolatry, but it's not just disagreeing. This is the second component. We don't need to just have the right moral vision. We also have to have what I called apostolic engagement. And what I mean by that is because apostolic is the word that means to send, to be sent out. In other words, to be missional in a sense, to, to be uh, evangelistic and engage the culture. It's one thing to lament the culture. It's another thing to do something about it. Paul saw the city's idolatry as an opportunity for the gospel, and that's the way that we ought to see it as well. This is why we ought to seek to emulate Paul. Paul told the Philippians in Philippians chapter 4, verse 9, he said, imitate my example, the things that you saw in me and hear in me and now see to be in me. He says, follow that example. Follow that example. But engage the culture with what? Paul didn't resort to protest. He didn't resort to violence or, or vandalism or humanitarianism. His indignation led him to proclamation. Notice verse 19 in the text. They saw, they heard that he was pro, a proclaimer, a preacher. You see that? It says, uh, the, it says may, uh, the Areopagus saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are proclaiming. That you are proclaiming, declaring is the point. And look at verse 17. 
to see this very thing. So he was reasoning in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be present. Now, two things I want to point out here, his argument and his audience. His argument was rational. It says he was reasoning. In other words, Paul was a logical debater. He was informed, and that's the, that's the way that we should be characterized. We should be characterized by a very cogent logic. We should, be, we should be educated. We should know what we're talking about. It's very simple, folks, what Pastor Emilio is saying here today. You need to know your book. You need to know your Bible. You need to know your doctrine. You need to know your worldview. You need to know what you believe more than the Muslims do. Because believe you me, they are being trained to understand our worldview and to refute it. At least they try. Which this begs the question, are we ready? Uh, look with me in 1 Peter chapter 3, because every single one of us not only is to be ready, not only are we to be in a place where we are equipped but we need to be ready for when God opens up the door, when he puts obligation upon us to do something with the gospel. Every one of us. 1 Peter 3.14, when your pastor's not available, when your husband's not available, when you're by yourself, when God opens a door and the apologist of the church is not there, the evangelist of the church is nowhere around, it's just you. It says here, but even if we should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you're blessed. Wow, what a perspective, huh? And do not fear their intimidation, and do not be troubled. Watch this. But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. Isn't that amazing? Every single one of us must be ready to give an apologia, a defense, an apologetic and it has to be cogent, logical, rational. We cannot, be, uh, we cannot come across as simply enthusiasts. I was watching a video, I don't know if you saw this, but um, it was about a Muslim going around the streets of London interviewing Christians, getting them to make some sort of defense for their Christianity, to which one man responded by speaking in tongues. And that was his defense. He began speaking in tongues and convulsing <laughs> and that was his apologia. <laughs> and the Muslim even pointed out, sir, this is your defense. It looks like the Muslims are winning this, this dialogue here because the only thing you have is speaking in tongues and convulsing. Now, I know that none of you, as far as I know, speak in tongues, and none of you are going to start convulsing, but how many of you are ready to give a defense? To give a defense. But also notice his audience because I think we can relate with the audience. Paul's audience consisted mainly of three types of people, those that were like him, those that were not exactly like him, and then everybody else, including people who were completely the opposite of him. Uh, this is the problem with friendship evangelism, right? Friendship evangelism is, is based on the assumption that you witness to people that are just like you and nobody else. But we are called to witness to everyone. And... Uh, Paul had a custom. He went to the Jewish synagogues. In every city that he visited, he visited the synagogue first. And then he also engaged the Gentile converts to Judaism, the God-fearers who had been brought up in Athens and began to follow the Jewish God, Yahweh. But Paul also engaged 
all of those folks who just happen to be there. In other words, there was a spontaneity to his witness. We could say that verse 17 gives us the who, the where, and the when of Paul's evangelism. But notice also where this took place, so the where, right? He was not just in a synagogue, a place you might expect him to be evangelistic and religious and speak about spiritual things, but also in the marketplace, the the, the agora, as it is called. Now, this is an important place because in the ancient world, the marketplace was the hub of civic life, just like it was in every town and every back in the New Testament era. And unlike, very much unlike our modern-day shopping plaza or mall or grocery store, the ancient marketplaces were different because they incorporated court systems and there were civil magistrates that would decide uh, 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 cases of law right there at the market. Now, can you imagine walking down the corridor of the mall and next to the Macy's, they're deciding uh, civil law. (laughs) And there are cases that you can go and observe and witness and there are proceedings and you can go and see criminals be put to death. In other words, our malls are quite boring by comparison. But the point is, is that Paul went to places where people gathered. He went to places where that that were really the hubs of society. Very interesting. You could go, you could say you could go and get some groceries, see a criminal condemned, and listen to a philosopher refuted all in the same day. That's what I mean by our malls are pretty boring comparison. Uh, But finally, Luke tells us when he did it as well. Look at the text back in Acts 17. He was in the marketplace every day with those that happened to be present. This means that Paul's preaching was on a regular basis and it was spontaneous with those who happened to be there. In fact, Paul wasn't even supposed to be there. If you jump back to chapter 16, uh, and even before the context here in verse 16, he's only there because he's fleeing persecution. He's he's in Athens because he had to flee the persecution of the Jews. And so talk about uh, uh, making uh, uh, choices and and taking opportunity. Uh, He did. He made the most of his circumstances, and he made choices that put him in the path where he could preach the gospel. Now, let's get to the third thing. Not only do we have to have the right moral vision, not only do we have to have apostolic engagement, but we also have to interpret worldviews. We have to interpret worldviews. Paul's world was a tangled mess, just like ours. It was a, a complete mess of philosophies and paganism and spiritualities. It was like a virtual kaleidoscope of worldviews. Every view under the sun. In the fabric of this passage, we have several perspectives and several worldviews mentioned. Of course, we have the Jews, we have the God-fears, the Greeks, the Gentiles coming into Judaism and into Jewish culture and Jewish custom. But now he mentions Epicureans and Stoic philosophers by name. It says there that he, he says in verse 18, it says, and also some 
Epicurean and Stoic philosophers were conversing with him. So here comes the presence of these two philosophical camps, and they are totally different. For example, uh, the, the, the Epicurean. The Epicurean believed that life was to be lived above everything in a fearless fashion, that life was to be lived with the attempt to experience as minimal amount of pain as possible, and that this life was really all that there was. For the Epicureans, they had no, they had no need of gods or deities. They had no need of them whatsoever. They were truly humanistic at heart, truly humanistic at heart. The Stoic, they believed in the divine principle or divine idea but the Stoic was essentially deistic. The Stoic believed that God was uninterested, but he was a cold, fatalistic God. And they believed that all of life was dominated by fatalism. You know what I mean by fatalism. That is to say that it was a determinism. Everything was predetermined, and there was no reason to be impassioned about anything in life. So the highest, the most ideal form of life for a Stoic was indifference. Indifference to pain, indifference to joy, indifference to happiness, indifference to pleasure, indifference to anything, to culture, to politics, to anything. The Stoic believed in a cold fatalism that governed everything. And what these two worldviews had in common, dear friends, is what all worldviews have in common, non-Christian worldviews. They do not result in meaning or purpose. They do not give us true knowledge. They are opposed to the biblical worldview. That is exactly what you find when you talk to people on the street. When you talk to people on the street, they cannot provide you for answers to the most basic questions of life. This is what it means for our neighbors to be lost to be in a state of spiritual stupor, to not be able to know anything. Uh, turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, God has made it this way. As a result of sin, man is in this spiritual condition. 1 Corinthians 1, beginning in verse 20. The only place that man can go once he's rejected the truth is to a man-made philosophy, to a man-made religion, a man-made wisdom that is ultimately futile, dark, and dead. Look at uh, verse 20. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? See, He has made it foolish. For since the wisdom of God, excuse me, for since in the wisdom of God, the world, through its wisdom, did not come to know God. God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. We're going to come back to that because we can't end with just a dark and dismal picture of culture. We have the answer, right? But we'll get there. Not only do we have to realize that the worldviews are hopelessly bankrupt, but we also have to realize that they neither understand nor appreciate our worldview. Look at, um, again, look at verse 18. The Epicurean and Stoic philosophers were conversing with him. Some were saying, what does this idle babbler wish to say? Others, he seems to be a proclaimer of strange deities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. 
And what that seems to imply is that they saw Jesus as one deity and the resurrection as another deity as far as they were concerned. They were two different gods that he was proclaiming. The point is, is that they did not understand Paul, and neither did they appreciate Paul. As a matter of fact, the term that you see there, idle babbler, literally means in the Greek, seed picker, seed picker. And what does that refer to? Well, it was a derogatory word that people would use to try to insult other people intellectually by pointing out that they are intellectually dishonest. It was a word that was often used to accuse people of intellectual plagiarism. And so what they were saying is that just like a bird that goes out into a field and picks up seeds everywhere, right? Some commentators would point out that it speaks of a bird picking out seed out of manure. Sorry for the visual, but that's the truth. It was very derogatory. It was just saying, you know, who is this fraud? (laughs) That's the way they looked at Paul. Like he was a total intellectual fraud. And um, don't we, can't we resonate, resonate with that today? We hear the same kind of insults, right? Oh, you believe the world is 6,000 years old? What's wrong with you? You must believe the earth is flat too, <laughs> right? Oh, you don't believe in evolution? You believe Noah was flowing around, floating around on an ark and he had a zoo and a boat? You believe that people walk on water? You believe that kind of worldview, right? Uh. People attack the Bible. The Bible was written by man, not by God. Don't you know that? Constantine wrote the Bible at the Council of Nicaea. You don't believe in evolution? What's wrong with you? No wonder you're homophobic. You see, these are the same insults that were occurring in Paul's day. The point is, culture will never understand Christ. To be specific, they will never understand Christ rightly represented or rightly presented, as he is, the Christ of Scripture. They will understand a different Jesus. They will understand a theistic evolution Jesus. They will understand an ecumenical Jesus. They will understand a postmodern Christ or a gay Christ. They will understand a Christ that is all love and no wrath. They will accept that kind of Christ but they will not accept the Christ of Scripture. And that is what is so wrong with our culture. Why? Because that Christ, the true Christ, is spiritually spiritually understood because He is spiritually revealed. Now, the fourth thing. Paul had an informed zeal. We already saw this. As hopeless as you may think the situation was, Paul is looking across a wasteland an ocean of idolatry and people that are willfully enslaved to idols. And you may think, well, the task of evangelism was certainly overwhelming and utterly hopeless. But that does not give us an excuse to be unintelligible. No, as a matter of fact, it seems as if these philosophers were compelled and even intrigued by what Paul is saying. Look at verse 19. They took him and they brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you're proclaiming? For you are bringing some strange things to our ears. So we want to know what these things mean. You see, I think when you preach the gospel rightly, when you preach the gospel authentically, several things will occur. Number one, it will open doors. It opened a massive door for the Apostle Paul. 
because he got invited to the Areopagus. What is the Areopagus? The Areopagus was a great debate hall of the ancient world. The, the Athenians, the, the Greek philosophers, would go into this great hall and they would debate all sorts of uh, philosophical matters. Nobody could just waltz into the Areopagus and debate. There were prominent voices that were speaking there. And Paul was given an, an incredible invitation to preach the gospel at a very influential platform. Those types of things will happen. I think of, um, I think of John MacArthur, uh, something as simple as that. Well, I don't know if it's simple. I don't think we'll be invited to, to, to CNN or anything like that. But he's invited on a national television to preach the gospel. And I think part of it is because he was distinct. But second, not only did, does it open doors for us, but it will open people's curiosity as well. Notice what they say. May we know this new teaching uh, which you are proclaiming. We want to know more about this. This is different than all the postmodernism that we get everywhere. I can hear college students telling me that, following up with us. And you that have been to UNT, you know that. They come up to us afterwards, and they have special questions for us. They want to dig a little bit deeper because they're so, they're so used to all of, the, all of the relativism and the postmodernism that, that is being shoved down their throat. And finally, somebody is standing up and saying, I believe that you can know truth, absolute truth. And that brings us to our third thing. Not only did it open up doors, not only did it open up curiosity, but third, it was distinct, meaning that it brought to the table a message unlike all of the countless messages that the Athenians had ever heard. Remember, our gospel is different. Our gospel is unique. Our gospel is transcendent. It transcends all time, all culture, all people. This brings us to this final point that I want to make, and that is on our What's it going to take to preach the gospel in a postmodern world? Doctrinal distinction. This is perhaps the most important uh, point of all. We are in a world, uh, as David Wells puts it, of fading dreams, meaning everybody's worldview has left them disillusioned, dysfunctional, and confused. Our calling is to preach in the context of that. Our calling is to preach nothing new to them. Nothing new. Isn't that amazing? Of all of the worldviews that are out there and the great fluctuations of our society and our culture, our calling is very simple. Our New Year's resolution as a church is very simple. Don't preach anything new. <laughs> Just preach the gospel. It is the only thing that will, that will transcend all of the whimsical, fickle changes in our culture. What people need more than ever is an anchor to the soul. Nothing new. And this, this is why I say that. Look at the last verse, Acts 17, 21. This is what makes us unique. Now, all the Athenians and the strangers visiting there used to spend their time in nothing other than telling or hearing something new. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Luke was led to write that detail down for us. That man's craving for novelty, man's craving for what is trendy and new, breaking news. I think I mentioned this before. Every time you turn on the television, every time you turn on the news, every time you click on the news website, breaking news. Well, it was breaking yesterday too. It's because they're, 
They're, they're, they're, they're appealing to man's his desire for innovation and desire for something that is fresh and trendy and novel. Well, what does a, what does a culture that is obsessed with new things, what does a culture like that need? This is what they need. Invariant truth. Truth that is unchanging and unchangeable. An anchor for the soul. This is what the cross is, according to Hebrews chapter 6, verse 19. It is an anchor for the soul. It holds us together. And it holds us, and it keeps us, and it sustains us, and it brings us into eternal life. We can, all, we can call it the cross, we can call it the gospel, we can call it the message of salvation in Christ, but either way, we must be committed to preaching the unchanging word of reconciliation. And we have to be indifferent. We have to develop an immunity to the whimsical ways of our culture, to be unimpressed with evangelicalism that is so-called I mean, evangelicalism today, what does it even mean anymore, right? There is evangelicals for marriage equality now, where uh, men like Matthew Vines and others are writing books uh, and saying that uh, Rob Bell is another one writing books saying times have changed. And if the church is going to survive, as Brian McLaren said, that the church is going to survive, we have to change too. We have to change too. I don't know what's coming in the new year, but if it's anything like this year, it's quite daunting. Folks, you know, we're living in a world where uh, sin and the grossest depravity is in the open now. Uh, I, I'm always amazed that when we make an argument for why homosexuality, for example, is wrong, is because it leads to other forms of sexual deviancy like pedophilia. And people say, well, that will never happen, right? You know what the problem with that is? Is that it's happening right now around the world systematically. The Muslim world is seeped in pedophilia. I don't know if you know that. Child brides are perfectly legal in Saudi Arabia. You can go to Pakistan and marry a child bride just like Prophet Muhammad. You can marry a nine-year-old girl, a 10-year-old girl. Have you heard of ISIS? They just put out a manual giving their jihadi fighters uh, instructions for how to not just obtain women slaves, but what are, what are the moral norms for attaining a child bride? <laughs> I mean, we think this is never going to happen. The reality is it's already happening all around us. And so what is the only message that will not fail? The only message is the message of reconciliation. This is why I'm zealous for our church that we never become about anything else. Christ, the gospel, the word of God, that's it. We're not impressed with trends. We're not impressed with gimmicks. We're not impressed with props. We don't need plays. We don't need dramas. We don't need skits. We don't need art. We need the Bible. We need the Word of God. We need the Gospel. That's the only thing that will protect us after all. That's the only thing, as Paul said, that if any other 
person, any other preacher, any other angel comes preaching to you, any other gospel, then you know what you must do. You must view it as anathema, cursed of God. You know what is not acceptable in our culture right now? Anathema. It's not even acceptable, right? You, the only anathema is to anathematize. It's the intolerance of tolerance that D.A. Carson talks about in his book. It's the, 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 the heresy of orthodoxy. It is, it is that if you dare point out that anybody is wrong about anything, you are instantly labeled and looked upon as the bigot and the, and, and, and the racist and the intolerant and the ignorant. Uh, that's where our culture is right now. And the Bible tells us exactly where we need to be. We need to be fixed. We need to preach the gospel. Jesus and the resurrection. This is man's only hope. And we have it. And for the life of this church, we will continue to defend it, to protect it, and to proclaim it in Jesus' name. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it's not easy in this context that we live in, and it's not easy for us to constantly hold the tide of orthodoxy in a world where heterodox has become trendy. Heresy has become acceptable. And scarcely can we find people with conviction and courage. Few are the voices. Few are the voices that are standing up today preaching prophetically to this culture, crying down the sins of the culture, crying down the sins that are enslaving our neighbors. God, give us courage and give us Christ-likeness and give us gentleness. At, even as Peter put it, pointed, uh, the way he put it, gentleness and reverence. Because what we're doing when we're pointing out the sin of the people is we're saying you are headed for a Christless eternity in hell. We're dealing with somber reality where people are literally standing on the precipice of destruction and eternal, eternal doom. And so, Lord, help us to be gentle. Help us to be humble. But, God, help us not to be timid. Because we have the truth. Help us to speak. Give us a mouth. Lord, I've said what I can. I've done what I've, I can do out of Acts 17 here today. Would you give your people a courage? Would you give your people the spirit of Paul, the mantle of Paul that is not just provoked by what you see on television, the internet, and culture, but engages it goes out and speaks about it and speaks to his neighbor about what's wrong with the world. Help us never to lose that edge. Father, we just commit ourselves to you afresh. Protect Heritage Grace in the year to come. Protect our families, Lord. Much of this begins with us personally, our lives, our marriages, our families. If we're not cutting it in our home, how can we cut it in the world? And so God, give us conviction to lead our homes righteously as much as we would want to lead our neighbors to righteousness. We thank you, Father. We bless you. It's in the name of your Son, Jesus. We pray all these things. Amen.